Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Leslie Masland, and this is Labor History Talks, an SEIU 221 caucus where we, the membership, local fellow labor unions, and like-minded friends from across the country come together to discuss the untold history of the fruits of our labor. Today is the 20th of September, the anniversary of thousands of workers at Ford Motors in the UK descending to strike in 1961 in defense of their tea breaks. Coffee and tea breaks, which many of us take for granted today, were won by decades of struggle. Tonight, Avery will be discussing the history of Black caucuses in unions. So without further ado, Avery, please take it away. Thanks, Leslie. In our course called Unions 101 Part 2, we recently learned that the Black freedom and labor movements have tended to rise and fall together in the U.S. The mistreatment of Black workers and the underpayment of Black labor do not benefit white workers. They benefit the employing class. When one group of workers' position in the labor market is weakened, this puts downward pressure on the whole labor market. Overall, lower wages and higher profits result. At the same time, by specially oppressing some workers, capitalism forces them to organize and fight back. And those workers thereby set an example badly needed by all workers. And because of their experience with struggle, they can provide badly needed leadership in the struggles of all workers. This rising and falling together of the black freedom and labor movements has in the long run broken down racist exclusion in the labor movement. Before the Civil War, all US unions, with the single exception of the New York City labor movement led by German Marxist immigrants, excluded black workers. Today, by contrast, black workers are disproportionately represented in the unions, though barriers still exist. But this long-term flip didn't happen automatically. Black workers fought for inclusion. And one of the ways this happened was through black caucuses. These caucuses often found themselves pushing the unions to do their jobs and actually fight against racial discrimination by the employers. These fights against the employers and the militant fighting spirit and experience brought out through the caucuses ended up generally strengthening the unions overall. So let's talk about black caucuses and labor organizations. The US Civil War, a very close and hard fought battle that was almost won by the Confederacy more than once, turned on the actions of slaves. Some 400,000 slaves fled the plantations in the first nationwide withdrawal of labor in US history. This quote, general strike, as W.E.B. Du Bois called it, weakened the Confederate economy. And those who fled made up the majority of the 189,000 black troops in the Union's armed forces. This led to emancipation. Emancipation led to the period called Radical Reconstruction during the years from 1866 to 76. Unions grew fast, 
coming together, not only in the National Labor Union, which was the first nationwide labor federation to admit black workers, but also in the colored National Labor Union. The two groups allied with each other, but the colored National Labor Union was necessary as extreme white supremacist sentiment still often made it difficult for black workers to be in the same organizations as white workers. And this union was the first mass experience of labor organization for the newly freed workers. But like the National Labor Union, the colored National Labor Union fell apart when reconstruction was defeated by Klan terror and the withdrawal of federal troops from the South. In 1925, black communist Lovett Fort Whiteman founded the American Negro Labor Congress. Its constitution called for, quote, the abolition of all discrimination, persecution, and exploitation of the Negro race and working people generally, to bring the Negro working people into the trade unions and the general labor movement with the white workers, to remove all bars and discrimination against Negroes and other races in the trade unions and to aid the general liberation of the darker races and the working people throughout all countries. And this organization, the Congress, only lasted five years and it struggled to become a solid organization, but it was a pioneering first step, not a separate labor organization, but an organization for changing unions from within. And with its excellent constitution quoted above, it was also an important first step for those who were aiming to bring lessons to the U.S. from the Russian Revolution, where Jewish workers had fought discrimination, gained the support of non-Jewish workers, and become leaders in the workers' movement and revolution. More successful than this first organization was the National Negro Congress formed in 1935. And the Congress was not a labor union per se. It campaigned against discrimination, lynching, police brutality, and for relief for the unemployed. Those were its basic purposes. But it became an indispensable partner to the nationwide union drive carried out by the Congress of Industrial Organizations. The National Negro Congress organized black churches to support union drives in mass production industries like steel and meatpacking. They convinced black workers, which had had largely negative experiences with racist exclusionary craft unions up to that time, to become the strongest supporters of the new and also far more powerful industrial unions that were coming together at that time. They insisted that these new unions negotiate anti-discrimination clauses in their contracts with the employers, that they admit people of color as equals and that they promote black leadership. Between 1935 and 1935, after which the National Negro Congress began to decline due to infighting, it helped to bring into being unions at the most powerful corporations in the world. And this monumental success laid the basis for the unique decades that followed in which our working class living standards consistently rose. Seems amazing today. 
But despite the decline of the National Negro Congress, the need for independent black labor organization remained. Founded in 1951, the next group, the National Negro Labor Council, accepted members of existing unions. It formed branches in 23 cities. Its goals were to, quote, break the patterns of job discrimination against Blacks in American industry and to use the trade union base to move the trade unions and our white allies within it into the liberation struggle for Black people with a primary concentration on economic issues as the key. The council successfully campaigned for black workers to get clerical and administrative jobs at Sears, office jobs at Ford, executive positions in banks and hotels, jobs on streetcars in multiple cities, jobs as baseball players in Detroit, dairy truck drivers in New York, production line workers in Brooklyn, and as airline stewardesses and pilots. In 1954, they built a community movement to get job training for black workers in Louisville, Kentucky, in preparation for the opening of a new General Electric plant in that city. But the council involving many communists and operating in the years of McCarthyism faced constant red baiting, including from AFL-CIO President Walter Ruther. In 1956, the council was bankrupted by the House Un-American Activities Committee. The council's executive secretary, Coleman Young, however, later became the first black mayor of Detroit. McCarthyism thus marginalized the black union alliance that won the labor movement's greatest victories in the 1930s. Another expression of this was that 11 unions were expelled from the AFL-CIO because they had socialist leaders. These unions were the most militant, the most multiracial, the most anti-racist, and often the most successful for their members. Unions like the West Coast Longshoremen, United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers, and the Farm Equipment Workers, or FE, who author Tony Gilpin spoke to this group about when she told us about the book she'd written on FA. FE was one of the unions that was raided and wiped out by the AFL-CIO as a whole. So the 1930s had brought black workers into the new industrial unions, establishing them as a permanent mass presence in most of the labor movement to this very day. But though McCarthy uh, through McCarthyism, unions like the steel workers and the United Auto Workers, they could no longer remove black workers from their membership roles, but they began discriminating against their black members, reserving better jobs, better promotional opportunities, and union offices only for white workers. Meanwhile, the old craft unions in the construction industry, while they could no longer officially exclude people of color, remained in reality white only. The construction trades in San Diego were typical. They did not begin actually admitting any workers of color until forced to do so by lawsuits in the 1970s. It was that recent. So it was into this more conservative, anti-communist and racist labor movement that black workers began pouring in greater numbers through the 50s and 60s. 
Black workers were 20% of union members by 1970, though only 12% of the population. That's an even more impressive number, considering that Blacks were still excluded from construction and other crafts. In Detroit, nearly half of auto workers were Black in 1968, an increase of 30% from just five years earlier. This was creating tremendous pressure for change, especially because these Black workers were influenced by the rapidly radicalizing Black consciousness of those years, known from 1968 six on as the Black Power Movement after a speech by Stokely Carmichael. Caucuses based on Black nationalist ideas began to form in this context across the country. In the steel workers and teachers, they tried running for office to oust existing leadership. In some unions, the black caucuses took a separatist stance, refusing to have anything to do with whites. In the bus drivers union in Chicago, a black caucus called the Concerned Transit Workers organized the 1968 strike, not against the employer, but against the all white leadership. They then tried to organize a breakaway union, but they lost the vote after the union finally brought eight black workers on the executive board. With that victory, the concerned transit workers then formed a cross union group called the Black Labor Federation. And this Black Labor Federation found supporters at Chicago's GE Hotpoint plant, where it organized a sit down strike to protest the racism of the union leadership. After the sit down protest, they ran a new militant slate for local leadership at Hot Point. And white workers joined in supporting this slate for a more militant leadership. And the slate won the election and promised to fight for an anti-discrimination cause clause in the next contract with the company. The new leadership led a strike against GE in 1969 and 70 that spread nationwide across multiple unions at the GE Corporation. Here we're seeing the dynamic of Black caucuses fighting discrimination in the union and this leading to a more militant stance and action by the union as a whole. The Society of Afro-American Postal Employees was another group. It helped unite workers from across the several different unions at the post office, and it became the leading force in the 1970 week-long postal workers wildcat strike. Blacks were 20% of the 700,000 postal workers across the country, and the strike was strongest in cities with large black postal worker populations. An unofficial and illegal wildcat strike that spans different cities across the whole country is perhaps the hardest kind of strike to pull off. A really amazing achievement. President Nixon called in the National Guard to break this strike, called on the National Guard to try to deliver the mail. But when the Guard couldn't do it, because workers actually know something that you have to be on the job to do, the nationwide illegal wildcat won a victory that postal workers today still consider foundational. Congress passed the Postal Reorganization Act shortly after in 1970, granting postal workers the right to negotiate over wages and working conditions. Didn't give them the right to strike, which they still don't have legally, 
but it gave them the right to negotiate, which they did not have. The illegal strike won them the right to negotiate, and they still have that right. But most, the most famous caucus was the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, formed in 1968 in Detroit, one year after the ghetto uprising in that city, which had been the largest of the decade. A group of black freedom struggle radicals in Detroit became convinced that that struggle could only advance if it became rooted in the strike power of workers and unions. A black workers wildcat strike at Dodge in May 1968 against the sped up work conditions at the plant attracted national attention. Dodge workers then formed the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement or DRUM. And soon after, Black auto workers at Chrysler, Ford, and two GM plants joined them. These groups faced opposition from both the company and from the UAW leadership, but they kept spreading beyond the auto industry to UPS, healthcare workers, and to workers in other cities like steel mills in Birmingham and auto plants in Baltimore, Fremont, California, and Mawa, New Jersey. The umbrella group linking all of these was the League, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. And this league set about to create a nationwide black workers organization. There's a film that was produced by the League. It's called Finally Got the News. We'll link a clip. You can watch it for free on YouTube. And I really recommend you do to get a flavor for what this impressive and most well-known group of its time. The League suffered from splits and lack of clarity about its goals, though. It produced politicians and others who remained influential in Detroit for decades, but it lost momentum by the mid-70s. But the League played a key role in focusing the 1960s new left, not only on unions and the working class, instead of just students, but also specifically on the rank and file within unions organize the rank and file. That was part of the message. And because of this example set by the league, dozens of union rank and file caucuses formed in the years that followed, from Teamsters for a Democratic Union in 1976 to the Caucus of Radical Educators, which took over the Chicago Teachers Union and led the 2012 Chicago Teacher Strike, the most important strike in the 21st century revival of labor we're witnessing today. These types of caucuses and the Labor Notes Network that supports them have anti-racist social justice politics, though they're not actually black caucuses generally. But they share the approach pioneered by the League to organizing workers for action inside plants that had drifted away from any kind of real rank and file action or control by the rank and file. They show us that rank and file union members can take matters into our own hands when we need to. And I'll just conclude by mentioning the issue of black caucuses is ongoing. Black caucuses continue to exist to this day from the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists founded in 1973 to AFRAM, which is the black caucus in the SEIU International to the African-American Action Committee in our local.